there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 30, The Mirage. This episode, I'll be covering the Weimar years between the Ruhr Crisis and the Great Depression, which, luckily for those that lived through those years, were much quieter than the ones that had preceded them. But still, that's a significant amount of time for this podcast, so buckle in, this episode is going to be a longer one. The years of tribulation that had marked the first half of the Weimar era had passed. And now comes the years of prosperity. Backed by loans from the United States, the economy started to boom, and for some in Germany, it was finally time to move past the Great War. And since some type of normality was able to establish itself, the social change that became more apparent in the absence of crisis was the divide between generations that lived through the war as adults versus those that came of age afterwards. I've talked at length about how the defeat was scarring, and the struggles of the first five years of the Republic only added to that for those who suffered through both. But by the latter half of the 20s, there was a younger generation arising. While they certainly suffered through deprivations the same as the older folks, they had not been as attached to the world of Imperial Germany, simply because they had not experienced the glory days. The past decade had been one of sacrifice and dislocation, and much of the youth wanted to move on. The generations before them had had the luxury of certainty and peace when making their life decisions. It was easy to settle on a career and lifestyle when the pre-war economy was humming right along and traditional customs still held strongly enough that someone could easily imagine their place in the world. This was all denied to the generation coming out of the 1914 to 1924 years. Scarcity was the reality, and hustling for work almost became an end unto itself. The members of this generation were unable to carve out a niche for themselves like their parents had done. Their lifestyles also changed. The youth had to be more flexible. They moved around more and were more likely to hold down different jobs. Starting families or even forming traditional relationships was more challenging than in previous generations, which to the modern listener might sound very familiar. The scarcity of jobs compounded all this, and older workers themselves were having trouble hanging on to the work that they already had, much less the youth trying to enter the workforce. These changes tied into something that really brought out a clamor in the whole country, even reaching the Reichstag eventually for legislation, that being the role of women in society. This was kind of a hot-button thing during the period in general, but in Germany there were added dimensions to the debate. Contrary to the portrayal of World War I Germany not utilizing women in the workforce properly, the female population most certainly was mobilized to work and constituted almost a third of the workforce even before the war. And afterwards, it was even higher, but the nature of the jobs women were working in had shifted. They started leaving the farmhand and domestic servant roles, which, given the state of the economy for a decade, uh, not many people could afford a maid or nanny. Instead, the share of work in office jobs, the public sector, and an industry held by women all increased. A lot of these jobs were clerical in nature, and required either organizational or technical aptitude that was perceived as more modern. Not trying to slight houseworkers or farmers here, that's just how people looked at it. Of course, they were underpaid, which also made them attractive to employers. Uh, the big point of debate, though, uh, were married women who held down a job in addition to their husbands. Jobs were so scarce that if a single household were holding down two jobs, then they were probably denying a household with no jobs a desperately needed paycheck. The resentment to this reached such a point that by 1932, in the depths of the Depression, a law was passed allowing publicly employed women to be dismissed 
if their husbands already had a decent job. In Germany, there too was the caricature of the 1920s flapper in the popular imagination, which was more born from a fear of a financially independent, non-traditional woman than any actual reality. While women certainly managed to break into higher-end work, with more money came more problems. The modernizing society brought with it a shift towards more consumerism, which meant that money was often spent on keeping up with the Yonzas. Modernization came to be associated with the United States and its culture of mass consumerism fueled by a dizzying industrial output. This actually seems kind of strange in retrospect, as before the war, one of the unifying ideals among Germans was that it was their society that was doing so much to advance the sciences and the economy, that they were the true modernists back then. Now, though, they had to look halfway across the world for an example to follow. In the span of a decade, the country had turned into a follower, not a leader. Instead of planting its ideals elsewhere, it was importing them from a foreign country. It was just another facet of the decade of regression that the nation was suffering through, and a sign of how discredited the old way of living had been. And there were distinct differences between the modernism of the empire and the American-influenced modernism of the republic. Work was especially becoming, quote-unquote, rationalized. This meant that, similar to what was happening in the U.S., the economy of every action that workers took to perform their jobs was measured and reorganized to be as efficient as possible. Simply put, workers would attend an assembly line and perform rote, simple actions over and over again as the product was sent down the line. We'll get into greater detail in the American episodes on that. While imitators like the Germans got good at it, they were never able to match the sheer output of the U.S. For Germany, however, it was a massive change in philosophy. The individual was perceived to be increasingly subsumed in the demands for ever greater outputs. The industrialists, like Hugo Steinus, constantly assaulted worker reforms to extract ever greater productivity from their employees. And to what end did the new Germany strive towards? Ultimately, it was an Americanized version of plenty. A clean, modern home with enough to eat, radios to listen to, trending new clothes, you get the picture. But that vision of material success obscured a larger issue, which was that there was no agreed-upon national goal beyond the new consumerism. The left wanted the workers' revolution, the right wanted a dissolution of the republic and a renewed drive towards national glory. The center failed to produce a true vision of its own. Their march to the future appeared to be just following the footsteps of the Americans. The economic expansion of the latter 1920s dominated the agenda far more than ideology. And we've already discussed the trend towards urbanization in previous episodes, whether due to wartime demands or economic necessity. The Americanization of society also played a part here, as the obsession with rationalization in the workplace spawned an equal obsession with functionalism in the home and public spaces. The influx of workers demanded an expansion to housing, the result was a burst of apartment construction, usually following new ideals of layout. Space was used as efficiently as possible, with rooms frequently serving more than one purpose. The new flats each largely followed the same designs, giving them a highly uniform feeling. They also were designed for particular kinds of furniture to make the best use of space, and little consideration was given to decoration. Naturally, it drew criticism. The older school quickly pointed out that these spaces were cramped and monotonous. The defenders exulted in just how much they accomplished with so few resources. This little example laid bare a dividing culture. The new demanded that a great deal be accomplished with a little, 
and at a price affordable to the average consumer. The old bemoaned the loss of the human element, the creativity, the sense of development. The critics did have a few who pined for a more pre-industrial lifestyle, but the majority were not against modernity by any means. Just they were uneasy about the loss of character and individuality in the home. This is important because one of the many things that the far right was railing against was the steady degradation of the German way of life, which, surprise, surprise, they will also be taking umbrage with other lifestyle changes developing in these new and exciting times of, well, a hundred years ago. When you think of Weimar Germany, and I can only imagine how often you do, you probably think of the culture that sprung up in Berlin. It's the alluring vision of cafes, nightclubs, and art exhibitions that I have mentioned in the past so enthralls historians. You shouldn't blame us. Most places we study are usually places we wouldn't want to actually visit ourselves, so we get a little excited when we find a decent-seeming time and place. I am, though, going to get the cold water out of the way first. Berlin was not Germany. Well, real Berlin wasn't even the Berlin people think of. Keep in mind that this city had seen numerous worker uprisings not too long ago. The city had been shelled and bombed. It had suffered, just like everywhere else, during the inflation. The glitz and glamour were a relatively small part of a city that was itself a part of a greater nation. The transformation of Berlin expressed itself in different ways. The first was the sudden influx of wealth that let the whole scene take off, and it drew so many from around the country to it. American loans, cheap money, lots of investments, and a lot of partying. Not too complicated, although it is a little jarring given how the city was more known as a proletarian epicenter like five years back. Now it was an epicenter of the rich, powerful, and connected. In turn, they became the patrons of the city's growing artistic community, and Berlin became an actual cultural capital. It had been politically important for generations globally, but Imperial Germany was not quite the fertile ground that the Republic proved to be. American music was brought into the nightclubs, risque performances were held, and the line between the artistic and the lewd started to blur for many traditionally-minded Germans. There was also an increased sexual permissiveness that was mostly unique to this little patch of the city. Clubs put on highly sexually charged shows, and casual sex was pretty out in the open. Homosexuals found their place here and had bars and clubs as you would find in a modern-day city. There were even the beginnings of what could be identified as an actual transsexual community, which for this time frame is very notable. I've been emphasizing just how much this quadrant of Berlin is an island for a very important reason. This was a very dynamic community that was actively engaged with challenging social mores. But they were doing so in such a concentrated fashion and so openly that it made them the perfect target and political strawman for the rest of the country. The right tore into the Berlin club scene as the worst fears of national degeneration realized. Cries of sexual depravity were a key conservative weapon, and they were not shy about using it as a cudgel. The jazz music that was so popular wasn't just foreign, it was African-American, which, just imagine your grandparents' opinion on hip-hop, and then amp it up a couple of clan rallies, and you'll have the discourse on the subject in Germany. And folks, these were the good times of the Republic. This is when people were the most well-off. I'd say just wait and see what happens in the times of deprivation, when the right moves from bang for blood to active violence, but you already know what happens. And of course, most of the people that were really targeted in the press and in the culture wars of the day were the average people, the ones that came to Berlin looking for something new and got to be engaged in a freer lifestyle. The wealthy socialites, whose money fueled much of it, were in it for the good times and the prestige of being part of the avant-garde. 
Once the pressure from the larger society got too great, or when the money ran out, or when, say, it became politically inconvenient, their association with the scene was severed real quick. The party and consumer atmosphere also meant that the new community that had sprung up in Berlin was not really protected by the left of the political spectrum either. It really was a bourgeois creative moment, which, of course, meant that it was left utterly unprotected when push came to shove and that bourgeois took their interests elsewhere. And if the trendy part of Berlin was such a small element of life in Germany during these years, what was it like for the rest of the country? Broadly speaking, there was relative prosperity. Investments were being made, jobs were being created, but the fissures of the old and new societies were left unresolved. I've heard one of the key flaws of a liberal-dominated society is that the conflicts that society suffers from are never resolved, only papered over and extended. I know it's really only a less-than-five-year moment of calm, but nothing is resolved socially by the Republic in these years. Political opinion keeps fracturing to where consensus became impossible, and the prosperity was only enabled due to easy access to loans. But the idea of America failing financially was not one that was considered at the time, and given the scale of Germany's recent trauma, propping up the economy, and thereby reasserting the nation's international standing again, was all that mattered. So problems were put off. A big display of those social fissures in Germany occurred in early 1925. Friedrich Ebert, the architect, however haphazardly, of the Republic, passed away. He had been under constant stress for almost a decade. First, he lost two of his sons during the war, then he shepherded the Republic through its stormy formation, and through all the changes in the Reichstag, he remained as president, even when his SPD party was banished from power. His death created an enticing vacuum, as while in modern Germany, the office of president is mostly ceremonial, back in those days, it conferred powers that were traditionally reserved for a Kaiser. This set the stage for the presidential election on March 29, 1925. Seventeen candidates ran, and none of them got a clear majority. A man named Karl Jahrs did get the most votes, being backed by the center-right parties. But he didn't clear the threshold to win outright, and there was no clear path to resolving the deadlock of a second election. So he bailed out and opened the way for Field Marshal von Hindenburg. Yep, the old imperial officer was stepping into politics for the first time. He was initially uncomfortable with the thought, as he was no Democrat, and it was reported that he had contacted the ex-Kaiser Wilhelm II for permission to stand for election. There was also a terrible outcry from much of Germany. Hindenburg was an avowed monarchist, and a conservative of the old order as a Junker. He was not totally in step with even the conservatives of the day. Even still, many among the conservative and nationalist factions hoped that he would overthrow the democracy once he was ensconced in office and set up the dream authoritarian state. The left of Germany happened to hold the exact same fear. There had just been a vicious struggle for the soul of Germany, and the only definitive outcome of it was that there was to be no more Kaiser. And now here was the old field marshal, a living fossil, standing for one of the most powerful offices in the country. The left and the liberals closed ranks and rallied around Wilhelm Marx, the colorless chancellor of the middle. The second round of voting was bitter even by the standards of the day, and to presume to carry with it the fate of the republic. Marx would carry on the status quo, Hindenburg would usher in a restoration of the old order. And, oh yeah, there was a third player as well. Ernst Thalmann stood on behalf of the communists. Thalmann was a Hamburg native who was engaged with the USPD 
until the left wing of that group merged with the communists. From there, he was knee-deep in every communist action. He even stood vigil over the glass coffin of Lenin when he found himself exiled from Germany for a time. But eventually he came back and assumed command of the Communist Party. Anyway, the race turned into a quasi-referendum on the Republic itself, and the results kind of spoke to how things were going to go. Hindenburg won the most votes, but not a majority. Marx was in a close second, while Thalman secured his own 13% of the vote. So yeah, if Thalman had tactically thrown his support towards Marx, then the non-right would have won easily. But keep in mind the communist viewpoint. Marx was not a whole lot different from Hindenburg, distinctions about democracy notwithstanding. It was a clear example of how the far left was not going to play with the establishment. But at this point, if I haven't made you understand why that was, then I never will. The SPD-KPD makeup will never be happening. The twist in all of this was that Hindenburg, at least initially, was content to work with the Republican system. If he ever had any concrete uh, plans to restore the monarchy, he never acted on them. We largely remember him as the dilapidated statesman of the early 30s, easily bendable to the will of the oncoming Nazis. At this point in time, though, he still had most of his faculties intact and turned into a defender of the Republic, however indirectly or unintendedly. As luck would have it, he just wasn't all that interested in launching a dictatorship like the far right had hoped. He certainly didn't hold a great deal of love for the Republic, but he also didn't see himself as a coup type. So he did the only thing he had been doing for decades now, uh, and served the existing German government with his trademark stability and lack of imagination. His presence forced much of the right to temper their attacks on the Republic, lest it seemed like they were attacking the leadership of the old field marshal himself. It was also later in 1925 that Germany and her neighbors engineered one of the most important diplomatic agreements of the period, the Locarno Treaties. Stressman, in his role as foreign minister, had managed to break Germany out of the economic vice that had constricted it for the past five years. Now that the domestic situation was a smidge secure, he started making moves to try and restore Germany as a major player on the world scene. Keep in mind, Stressman may have been perfectly happy to work within the framework of the Republic more so than others. He was also still very much a nationalist who sought to push his own country's interests. That meant being able to engage in actual foreign policy with other nations, as well as join the League of Nations sooner rather than later. The barrier to that was the same as it always had been, France. Stressman zeroed in on this obstacle and sought to neutralize it peacefully. Fortunately for him, British were well and truly exhausted by the continental chaos the past two years. They agreed to help bring France to the table. Luckier still, France's foreign minister at this stage was Briand, who, like Stressman, had not fared terribly well as head of government, but was still in the diplomacy game and himself looking to establish a long-term understanding. Both Stressman and Briand were nationalists who saw their own nations as increasingly too small to count as great powers, at least when compared to the U.S. or the British Empire, and thought they could use each other to enhance their own positions. Stressman saw a concordant with France in the West as a means to end that long-term rivalry and gain some freedom of action in the East. So, representatives of the various European powers met up in the Swiss town of Locarno in October 1925. Biggest agreement was Germany giving its guarantee to launch no aggressive actions on its western border. This would be enforced not just by France and Belgium, but by the UK and Italy as well. In exchange, the French would evacuate the Rhineland by 1930, 
five years earlier than scheduled. This was a big step by the UK. Formerly, they had been ambivalent about making guarantees and commitments in Europe. The about-face wasn't that hard to understand, though. They were going through their own economic troubles back home. Keep in mind, this was the time of the intense labor disputes leading to their general strike, and they desperately wanted Germany back to normal as a market. This also gave France the feeling of security they had been searching for years now. There was the little issue of the East, though. Germany had renounced trying to get back the land it had lost to France and Belgium, but very, very pointedly did not revoke its claims to the East. There was an agreement between the Germans, vis-à-vis the Poles and Czechoslovaks, but it was one that merely called for an arbitration at a future date. Germany did not agree that its current eastern frontiers were to be permanent, and the states to the east took a very apprehensive note of that. France assured them of military assistance in case of an attack, but Britain abstained from making the same commitment. Despite the French assurances, the damage was done as Locarno drove a wedge between France and its allies in Central Europe, effectively putting the idea of a little entente surrounding Germany on hold indefinitely, which was great for Germany. Even so, the treaty was viewed as a smashing success for all involved. The nations, who had, just ten years previously, been relentlessly slaughtering each other, were now reasonably setting aside their differences and choosing diplomacy as their strongest weapon of statecraft. This feeling of diplomatic primacy was referred to as the spirit of Locarno. The British foreign minister, Austin Chamberlain, would win the Nobel Peace Prize for 1925, while Briand and Stressman would jointly win the prize in 1926 all for their efforts on the treaties. This diplomatic success was followed up in the next year with the Soviet Union. On April 24, 1926, the Treaty of Berlin was signed, establishing a non-aggression pact with the Soviets for five years. This was a slight modification of the previous relationship established at Rapallo, with the treaty limiting their political commitments to ensuring neither party would assist Poland with invading the other. It did create a more involved economic relationship, as Germany started loaning out to the USSR, which was desperate for access to foreign currency to purchase machine tools it could not build itself, but would have to buy abroad. Effectively, Germany was loaning Russia money with which to buy German industrial machinery. Not the worst deal in the world, and a testament to the new stability Germany was enjoying fiscally. Finally, the treaty established Germany as a middleman between the Soviets and the West. Later, on September 8, 1926, Germany was brought in as a full member of the League of Nations. Their size and importance quickly got them into a leadership role, and Germany was soon pushing its economic and diplomatic interests from within the organization. The enhanced interest in diplomacy during the period probably peaked in 1928 with the Kellogg-Briand Pact, which Germany was a signatory to. While its outlawing of aggressive war was, even at the time, seen as impractical, that it was discussed and agreed to does at least show the optimism for the future. These diplomatic successes were being overshadowed, though, by an increasingly chaotic political scene back in Berlin. One notable figure to emerge was General Kurt von Schleicher, who up to this point had been a protege of General Seat. Schleicher had been involved in every underhanded dealing of the early republic's military, from creating the Free Corps, to aiding the underground Black Reichswehr, to establishing secret military contacts with the Soviet Union. Now, he evidently decided that his boss was too traditional a figure for the authoritarian future he envisioned. Seat had made the transgression of privately inviting the Crown Prince Wilhelm, son of the ex-Kaiser, on a military exercise. 
Schleicher leaked this news to the government, and they were upset. Wilhelm had no formal standing within the German state or military. In fact, he had promised the government that he would stay firmly out of politics, and that included the military. That Siecht had invited him without any approval was a major source of contention, and he was forced to resign his leadership of the army. A general named August Heia assumed formal command of the army, but it was Schleicher, acting from within both the army and defense ministry, that had effective control. The former quartermaster General Groner, whom you remember was the man who made the alliance with President Ebert between the military and the newborn government in the first place, and who had been subsequently forced out of the army by Siecht, eventually became Minister of Defense in 1928 as a civilian. He and Schleicher began laying the groundwork for an eventual rearmament program and to use the military to influence the civilian government. And given the political situation, they couldn't have picked a better time to start with those kinds of shenanigans. The centrist parties that were expected to run the Republic as a coalition were still terribly unstable. The sitting chancellor, Hans Luther, only lasted from January 1925 to May 1926. Hindenburg had to step in and personally reappoint Wilhelm Marx, his old presidential rival, as chancellor once again. Things were still dysfunctional, though, and Marx wound up having to form a new coalition by January 1927, this time bringing in more of the far-right elements. This proved momentarily stable, though like every other government formed since the inflation crisis, that was more due to no faction in the government having the necessary power to actually do anything. So, the political gridlock continued all through 1927 and into 1928. At least, no major disasters happened then. Just the continued disillusionment among the populace and democracy as they watched their government slide into inaction domestically. In May 1928, the third Reichstag elections took place, and the group of parties sitting on the center and center-right saw minor losses, which turned out to be enough cumulatively for the SPD and KPD both to expand their share of seats. This might seem at odds with me saying that trends pointed towards a more conservative direction, especially with the election of Hindenburg and the increasing disquiet over the direction society was headed in. At this point, though, the coalitions on the center-right had exhausted the electorate's patience, and there wasn't yet a viable leader among the far-right to harness that fatigue. By this point, Adolf Hitler is out of jail, but the Nazis were struggling to be taken seriously after their attempted push and resulting probation from running in elections. So, some voters turned to the SPD, searching for any different direction than the one that they were currently experiencing. The SPD, though, still only wound up with 30% of the vote, making them the biggest party, but still in the minority. The KPD had increased its vote share to 10.5%, which was sizable, but also left them sitting as a protest party. At this point, the KPD is completely under Ernst Thalmann, who had taken a turn towards Stalinism and adopted the international communist line of not cooperating with national governments. The KPD branded the SPD as social fascists and told them to kick rocks. The SPD wasn't really interested in working with the communists anyway, and they went ahead and coalitioned with the centrist parties again. The centrists, for their part, were not terribly enthusiastic again and were preparing to resist when Stressman personally intervened to convince them to accept the SPD candidate for chancellor, Hermann Mueller. The centrists grumbled about having to work with the despised SPD again, but went along with it. At this point, you may be getting tired of hearing about the endless strings of centrist parties banding together and not really accomplishing anything. 
Believe me, so was Germany at this point. You might be frustrated listening to all this, but they had to endure years of it. If it makes it any better, it does highlight the dangers of extended periods of political gridlock and undermining the legitimacy of an institution. In any case, the coalition solved nothing and the Reichstag broke down in squabbling all over again. A notable case that split the new government was the question of funding for new heavy cruisers for the Navy. The SPD didn't want to waste money on a naval program that wasn't going to go anywhere, but pretty much everybody else did. The new chancellor was overruled by the Reichstag, and the construction of the ships moved forward. In this, Schleicher moved behind the scenes and marshaled support for the new warships. Schleicher and Defense Minister Groner had both been apprehensive about the SPD, but had been open to working with them provided Mueller played ball with them on rearmament. And oh boy, they did not take the resistance well. The pair decided that democratic means were no longer a viable option for their vision of Germany, and started working against Mueller and the Republic in general. Keep in mind that Groner and Schleicher are both members of Mueller's government, and Schleicher was still a general in the army. Anyway, the government was left in a state of domestic paralysis, with Schleicher working behind the scenes to marshal the right and center against the SPD. Yes, an active general in the army and in the government's defense ministry was working to undermine the sitting chancellor and the republic as a whole. No, this wasn't going to end well, and yes, the countdown to the Great Depression is ticking away in the background. Probably the last great achievement of the Republic was, again, on the diplomatic front, in the form of the Young Plan. If you recall the Dawes Plan, it was named for one of two American mediators that worked with the European powers. The one that didn't get his name attached to the plan, Owen Young, now got his moment to get his name in the history books. The reason for the occasion was that Wall Street was concerned with the term of the Dawes Plan made five years earlier. Very soon, the amount Germany was going to have to start paying out to the Entente was going to go up, and they really weren't flush with spare cash to do that. The worry among the Americans was that this would hurt Germany's ability to pay back their New York loans and discourage them from making new ones. A 20% reduction in payments was agreed upon by the Entente, U.S., and Germany. Unfortunately, the point was moot as the negotiations progressed through 1929 and into 1930. By the time the plan was completed, the Depression had sunk in and the whole situation had changed. The plan was never put into practical action due to that Depression. There is a reason, though, as to why I'm describing a stillborn economic plan that never amounted to anything. It had to do with the debate on the plan. The far right opposed all forms of reparations, even reduced ones. There was an organized attempt among the far right elements to block the plan and refuse future payments. The effort failed, but it did two things. One, it brought the Nazis back into the mainstream of politics as participants in this joint far right effort. And two, when it failed, Hitler was able to trash the rest of the far right leadership as ineffectual and make his claim to being the only man who could produce results. And to top it off, on October 3, 1929, Stressman died of a stroke. The strongest figure among the center of Weimar politics was gone at this most critical juncture. Which, I suppose that might be a good place to leave you, right on the precipice of the Wall Street crash. I'll eulogize Weimar when it's actually dead, but suffice to say, at this point, things weren't looking great. We won't come back to the national history of Germany for a little while. That'll be for season two of this podcast. But we aren't done with the Germans quite yet. Next week, 
we begin a series of biography episodes on our primary villain, Adolf Hitler. We'll follow his misadventures all the way up to this point, which will double as a history of the Nazi party for the 20s, as the man and his party proved to be inseparable. I'll see you then, and as always, thank you very much for listening. Thank you.